0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Writers Buzz is a series of free events that bring together Colorado's writers, readers, and artistic community. Hosted in Lighthouse's Grotto, the format is ever changing but always fun, encompassing readings, talks, special seminars, and collaborations across disciplines. Story of a Book is an annual celebration of several lighthouses and their forthcoming books. Hear the ins and outs of the process they enjoyed or endured in getting their manuscripts from the crazy first idea and into actual print. Each panelist reads a short passage from their book and tells the story of how it all came about. The buzz concludes with a Q&A session with the audience and book signing. The March 2013 story of a book, 4.0, featured David Daniels, Breakfast in the Suburbs, Peter Stenson, Fiend, a novel, Joanna Ruoco, Another Governess, The Least Blacksmith, a diptych, and David Rothman, Part of the Darkness, and The Book of Catapults.
1: Welcome. Um, for those of you who don't know me, who doesn't know me? Oh, good. A couple of people. I'm Mike Henry, I'm the Executive Director of Lighthouse Writers' Workshop. Thanks for coming tonight to the story of a book. Who doesn't want to know? That? Right! That's <laughs> true, yeah. I'm sure there's some people who wish they didn't. Wow, okay, so um, thanks for coming tonight. Really, really great to see you here. Um, story of a book, it's always really exciting because they tell such great stories, and the books are so great also. Um, I'm going to read a poem uh, by Mark Doty just to kind of get us warmed up and just so you can see how fantastic he is. So this is what a poem should do. Andrew and I were talking about this and I'm way over. Brian, age seven. Grateful for their tour of the pharmacy, the first grade class has drawn these pictures. Each self-portrait taped to the window glass, faces wide to the street, round and available with parallel lines for hair hair. I like this one best, Brian, whose attenuated name fills a quarter of the frame stretched beside impossible legs descending from the ball of his torso, two long arms from that same central sphere. (laughs) He breathes here on his page. It isn't craft that makes this figure come alive. Brian draws just balls and lines and wobbly crayon strokes. Why do some marks seem to thrill with life, possess a portion of the nervous energy in their maker's hand? That big curve of a smile reaches nearly to the rim of his face. He holds a towering ice cream, brown spheres teetering on their cone. A soft fountain gift, half the length of him, as if it were the flag of his own country held high by the unadorned black line of his arm. Such naked support for so much delight. Artless boy, he's found a system of beauty. He shows us pleasure and what pleasure resists. The ice cream is delicious. He's frail beside his relentless standard. Thank you. Yeah, he's no slouch, yeah. So now the true MC of the night is. Um, did I say. Did I call you out as this st- staff member? Yes, I was holding it. Perhaps the most handsomest staff member we have is our creative curator. Amazing guy. He really gets stuff done. He. I. I I love him like a brother Dan Manzanaris
2: All right I have some folks I need to thank Then it's going to get a little weird (laughs) Um, Then first up to bats Will be David Daniels um, To talk about his poetry trap book Breakfast in the Suburbs All right I also prepared a little Welcome for Drew and Kate Um, I asked them two questions each. What are you reading? And if you were banished to a desert island and could only bring one book, what would it be? And these are their unedited responses. (laughs) Drew Wilson says, Right now I'm reading Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad in the bathroom, David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas at the gym, and Mark Doty's Dog Years in Bed. I also have a copy of Dashiel Hammett's *The Thin Man* in my backpack, so I'm hoping to someday soon end up in a long line, traffic jam, or doctor's waiting room. <laughs> to the second question, which I find hilarious, is he goes banished? Banished as opposed to stranded? Because that's what I was trying to say, but couldn't think of it when I was writing the email. And I was like, whatever, it's banished. It is not banished, it is stranded. And Drew pointed that out. Uh, he'd probably bring Revenge for Dummies or the Big Book of Vengeance. Nobody banishes me and gets away with it. <laughs> Kate Barrett. <laughs> Said, reading right now, Canada by Richard Ford. And she goes, Desert Island? Oh, God, what a terrible question. I'll avoid giving a real answer and go with the obvious best choice, Robinson Crusoe, because ideally it would entertain me while serving the dual purpose of Survival Handbook. <laughs> Practical and honest. That second question did suck. <laughs> Now, on to the weird bit. Um, I've had a feeling for a few months now, a feeling I couldn't really shake or qualify. Uh, That is until, and I admit this has happened before to me, um, TV came to the rescue. Uh, hmm. Two different shows taking the form of my rescuer. The first was a documentary about wolves, where this Canadian documentary team was filming wolves from a helicopter. And they caught never, never before seen, you know, uh, actions and behavior of these wolves. And the one that I want to mention right now is a 600-pound buffalo was running away from the alpha wolf, full-on running away. And the alpha wolf was so strong, he just grabbed it by its flank, running full speed, and stopped it. Slit it open and just waited For it to die so that one Wolf took out one buffalo and no one Knew that that was possible um, And I sat with that And I was like that's awesome and the guy thought it was awesome um, And then the second One is another documentary um, <laughs> About a, a, a Cave in France where There was rock art on the wall that dates Back more than 30,000 years And And um, and there was, you know, this beautiful rock art and they were just like, holy crap, and it was blowing everybody's minds. But then like way in the back of the cave, there was a footprint of a little girl. You know, and they're they're saying like ten maybe, and who knows how old that is I mean that that's thirty thousand years or fifteen thousand years or however old that was. And then next to it was a wolf print. The wolf hair. Well, that's right. <laughs> Well, that's, he was like, there's all this speculation, right? Okay, that she was being hunted, or they were friends. He said that, and I was like, maybe they were friends then. <laughs> or it could have been like, that happened 30,000 years ago, then the wolf print happened 20,000. You know, like, you just don't know, right? But I like, <clears throat> that wolf, and then the wolf, and then I, this memory hit me, and I knew exactly what the feeling was that I had been dealing with these last months. And that was... Um... <laughs> You like that timing? Yeah, that was totally planned. Um, and the, so, the, the well, the, okay. First of all, the feeling I got, then I noticed what the feeling was, and then like I, I got a memory of my own, and like it sparked this memory. And the memory was when I was volunteering for a wolf sanctuary in Laporte, um, right up here in Colorado, and uh, th- there, there was I was in I was in one of the you know um, cages of the wolves, and there's like four wolves in there, and we were feeding them medicine. And, uh, there's like three wolves over here and the volunteers are over here and we're all talking, chatting and I'm trying to see where these wolves are. And I lost track of one of the wolves and then we're just talking whatever. And then something like, like a feeling ripped up my spine and I turned around and the wolf was right there just staring at my back. And I was like, and then that, then that's when (laughs) I remembered that feeling. And the feeling is that I am hunted. And I'm a hunted man. (laughs) So after dealing with that concept for a while, I went to Boston for AWP with Mike and Andrea and Meg Nix. There I realized it wasn't just me. 11,000 riders descended upon Boston during this conference, and all of them, all of them were hunted. I came back to Lighthouse, and I saw the hunted here, too, everywhere. I saw the regulars at Monday riding hours and thought, ah, yes, the Monday hunted. I saw at Friday 500, thinking to myself, "These Friday hunted son of a guns." At Ride-a-thon, there was the three-hour-long hunted and the seven-hour-long hunted, and if you're Carrie Booth, the eleven-long-hour hunted. The hunted were here two weeks ago at the draft. They were in my January fiction writing, my January fiction workshop, handing in pages, asking the rest of us in class, "Is this story hunting me enough?" The hunted go to the bars after class and at the satire lounge I hear the conversations. Everyone saying, pass the pitcher, fill up my glass. It's scary being hunted like I am. This feeling I take home, me and my wife. Which, by the way, shouldn't everyone have the right to say that? My wife, my husband, regardless the gender of the speaker. Yeah? And better yet, And better yet, shouldn't all writers have the right to say that? Um, You should be able to be in bed with your spouse, reading, turn to her or him, go on and on and on about being a hunted man. Go on and on and on until there are tears in your eyes. Then she or he, having taken in all you've said, would nod all knowingly, tenderly take your hand and say, Babe what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Every writer should have the right to know what that feels like. <clears throat> the idea is, is that I don't feel like a creator and a destroyer of worlds. For all the workshops, lit fest, Grand Lake retreats, drafts, buzzes, Friday 500s, writer studios, flybys I've attended since November 2010 when I discovered Lighthouse, I realized I've been training my novel to hunt me. Three years, the only thing it could hunt? Ladybugs. A wolf pup hunting butterflies. I've been honing my story to hunt bigger prey, giving it faster legs, better vision, sharp, sharper scent of smell, muscular howl, sharper teeth so it could hunt my ass. I see the writers behind me, not as creating and destroying, but being created and destroyed by the stories and the poems that hunted them. And I love it. I truly love it. Welcome to the story 4.0, story of the book 4.0, Stay Hunted. All right. Main event time. David J. J. Daniels is the author of two chapbooks, Breakfast in the Suburbs, and Indecency, winner of the Robert Becker Chapbook Prize. His full-length collection, Clean, won the Four-Way Books Intro Prize and will be published in January 2014. Recent poems appear in Kenyon Review, Indiana Review, Pleiades, Boston Review, and elsewhere. He teaches at the University of Denver. Let's welcome David. (laughs)
3: Thank you. Thanks, Dan, Mike, and Andrea. Friends who've come out here tonight, lovely to have you. Thanks, everybody. Uh, This is the book for sale out back there, but it's not the book I'm going to talk about tonight in the story I've got to tell. Um, The the book I'm going to talk about is the book... Clean, which will come out in about six months. So this came out last year, and there's another chapbook you can't buy tonight either. But the biggie called Clean, I've got a story to tell. Some of the poems in this are in that book. I uh, took a 15-year hiatus off from writing poetry, got my grad degree way back in the mid-90s, late, uh, uh, around nine eleven is when I stopped, so late 90s got my MFA, and then quit for 15 years. Had a stack of poems, didn't work on them until a friend contacted me and said, where's that stack of poems? Why aren't you sending them out? So I thought, okay, I'll compile stuff, and um, compiled them, and thought, I need somebody to look at this. So I joined a class right up here at Lighthouse with Chris Rancic, Um, a master class in poetry, where you need a full-length manuscript, and Got advice from Roxanne back there and Chris on a Thursday night. Got advice and stayed up until 7 a.m. Friday when the deadline for the four way intro. I kid you not. And the book freaking won a month later (laughs) because of Lighthouse. I mean, there's a story, right? Got this advice, made copious notes, and uh, revised it, sent it off. And thanks to... I was going to... Ch- I might call it... I might change the title from Clean to Lighthouse, or just Chris, Chris Rancic and Roxanne. Um... The story of clean in terms of the poetry, it's very weird to talk about the conception of poems because I just get up and I write every morning and I sit out back and I chain smoke and I work. <laughs> That's what I do. I work a lot in rhyme and form. I don't think too much about like the narrative. Um, I play. They're like jigsaw puzzles. Um, but I did notice at some point I was writing a lot of poems addressed to you and you and you and you, specific yous who had... Died or vanished uh, for a variety of reasons um, in the 80s and 90s in my life. So, a bulk of Clean and some of the poems in this book are written in the second person, um, trying to memorialize specific people who are missing or have vanished. I'll read a handful, I'll read three quick <coughs> things to you. Um, I cuss in this one. I cuss in a lot of them. This is called Missing. And the you in here is me. Missing. It's a sonnet. Face of a kid you fucked last fall in a fit of desperation if desperation's not too heady a term for it, plastered now all over town on a set of cheaply Xeroxed black and whites. Phone for his folks. Phone for the rescue squad. Plus stats. So he wasn't lying about his age. Brave kid. Detoxed three months to the night you met. Re-enrolled, picked up new janitorial gig. Not a bad gig. Not the worst fuck by any means. One of those nearly convincingly solid commodities swapped fast, untalked about, seemingly apart from power. While now the public power lines are hitched to every pole his face is stapled to. Here's a home to a drag queen this is a true story This was mere, it's titled mere hours after the drag show this happened right after a drag show great drag queen performing and then um, someone threw a drink in her face hours later she was standing there crying and I was like "Oh, lady you were funnier an hour ago <laughs> mere hours after the drag show Now that we've killed off Dolly Parton, how to dispose of the body? Now that you've made her beg in that twang we secretly loved in the suburbs, with what do we fish her out? Old queen covered in drink by the bar, pray tell, why are you weeping? Why speak serious now? We never liked you, serious. And then this is a slightly longer one. It's the title poem, Clean, um, from, from the book coming out. Oh, in terms of this chapbook, my uh, sister and brother-in-law, Kim and Ben, designed it. They're back there. I think it's pretty nice. Um, clean... In the book itself carries a lot of uh, uh, resonance with HIV, of course. And, um, but in the title poem, this one, a friend of ours, total drunk, total lovely fellow, great guy, got clean and came back and was, re- again, really boring. And so <laughs> I actually try to work out how, uh, dude, like, we're happy for you. <laughs> And um, St. Luke appears here. So this is a Easter weekend, but it's a, it's a mental institution in this poem, St. Luke's. Um, but this is clean uh, to my friend Danny Starr. Um, clean. It took a parceling out of pills issued governmentally just to get you off pills and stabilized mentally. Just as it took, from your stool and lacquered table, a cavalry of bouncers to haul you out. Your stable shot glass tower of half-ouncers, leaning a bit as the leaning tower of Pisa, refusing to topple, though structurally unsound, as you leaned into the squad car with a please- a girlish thank-you-kindly, sirs, and found yourself holed up in a cell for the night. Your cell warden found you, if not repentant, at least inclined to chatter, and by morning the Lord and your lordy Lord turned mildly reverent and released to the gently prodding hands of St. Luke's community health, the intern's hands that held you down through the sweat and shaky shakes, a rag to the forehead and straps at the knees till at last you found your way, yea, verily, into the golden-rotted veil with a stunning volte face that shocked the nuns and you held out your tongue to the viaticum who once held intently the metal-lip of your metal vomit pail and nightly you took in the treasured vulgate rendered in anime a six-part video disc that they screened down in recovery b the weight of your life got weightier the more they cleaned you out weightier than your shuffleboard pucks of meat but there at St. Luke's was a system of valves and seamless counter valves, round little blowholes for letting out steam that gradually brought you round. And gradually round again, you came to visit. We, Who'd seen you clean off a dance floor with your famously lewd gyrations and times a plenty? Who had cleaned you off with a bar rag and spot of seltzer? Crude, corrupt. You came back clean, if notably less witty. No more drama from the drama queen, but less pretty. Thank you.
2: Thank you, David. I should have mentioned at the beginning that uh, after everyone reads and before we do book signing and book sell stuff, uh, there will be like 10 minutes to do a Q&A of these guys. So if you think of any stuff, you know, about their process or the book itself, you know, um, ask. All right. Next up is Joanna Rocco. Uh, Joanna is the author of The Mothering Coven from Ellipsis Press, Man's Companions, tarpaulin sky press a compendium of domestic incidents noemi yeah. noemi press <clears throat> and another governess the least blacksmith a diptych from fc2 she has also published two books gazelle in the moonlight and midnight flame as alessandra shabazz mm-hmm. i love that name uh, Tony Jones, her more athletic alter ego, just released her first novel, *No Secrets in Spandex*, <laughs> from Crimson Romance. Let's welcome Joanna.
4: Hello, thank you. Um, I'm glad to share this holy Saturday with you. Um, It would probably be um, funnier and way sexier to talk about No Secrets and Spandex, but instead (laughs) I'm going to talk about uh, another governess, Elise Blacksmith, um, which uh, came out recently from FC2. And I I usually begin book projects from um, a piece of language often, and so there's uh, a line in in Hamlet. um, It's part of Ophelia's mad scene where she says a lot of nani-nani mad stuff. And then she says, um, they say the owl is a baker's daughter. And there are a lot of glosses on that line. I mean, the most uh, sort of compelling glosses. it's a mad scene. It doesn't really mean anything. But then there are some, <laughs> there are some sub-glosses. Um, and it, it's sort of, it's a folktale about Jesus which works with Holy Saturday. Um, but I'm going to ignore that. And it's it's about um, transformation. So, the baker's daughter becomes an owl, and a baker's daughter in the 16th century she's a, often a, a woman of ill repute. I mean, she's a, she's a poor woman, and so I just started to just turn around this this sort of strange line and this idea of the baker's daughter, and I wrote um, a very very short uh, story that I sent out to Mudluscious uh, Press, which is a really awesome. Uh, Colorado-based press that everyone should check out, and um, they had a chapbook series. So I published this very short story called uh, The Baker's Daughter, and uh, it was bleak, and the style was really flat, and it was monotonous, and it was unpleasant, and I thought, well, I'm glad that's over. (laughs) And then I realized that it had to become a novel, um, because (laughs) that—because that that language and that voice just—it um, it, wouldn't—it wouldn't go away. It was like um, a, a really um, sort of violent story, but quietly violent. And so I, I kept working with that style, and it became a first-person voice. And I started to um, incorporate tropes from governess fiction, and I realized I was—I was writing a sort of fractured. Um, fractured narrative of a woman who finds herself in a nursery in a decaying manor home and she doesn't belong there. She suffered some trauma. And it's her trying to, to tell this story. And interspersed with the first person accounts are uh, these little tales of daughters and the great harms that befall them. Um, and when I had that that sort of style and was in the miserable place of of, of writing that, Novel, I, I realized um, conceptually that it, it had a, a counter a counterpoint to it, and so um, the least blacksmith became the other half of the diptych and that is a first person story which de- deals more with tropes from um, boys fiction from adventure stories it 's a first person narrator the story is more linear it 's a boy who 's failing to live up to um, to his father, the blacksmith. And so it has more to do with the workplace and also just with the sort of straight ahead um, narrative that you would find in adventure fiction. So I'm, I'm interested um, in in the book and sort of... Um, having a sort of intervention with the sorts of books that I read and with gendered writing, the idea of gendered writing. And I, I sort of say all of this like it's very rarefied and I only work from language, but I, I should maybe mention that I, my father is a baker and so I'm a baker's daughter. Um, <laughs> because I was, I was saying this once where I was like, I had this whole, like to my friend, I was like, the story of this book and it has to do with language and the baker's daughter. She was like, dude, your father's a baker. And I was like, Oh is, is it really that um so <laughs> I just I think um it's interesting. Sometimes people sort of position themselves as, as those who sort of write from life or think that writing is expression. And people that have um, an approach which is more about seeing um, language as an artifact or sort of working and in, like, in embroidering or seeing language as, as artifice. And I sort of always subscribe to that. I'm working in language. But, I mean, we live our lives and those things as well as the books we read filter Filter through us, and so it 's always both um, so I was just going to read a really um, short passage um, from another governess, and um, it's it's pretty miserable my um, um, writing other projects that i've written they're, they're, um, there's often even if the the subject is dark, i often um I find that I'm incorporating humor or there are these little um, escape valves where – Things can become light, and it was it was a real challenge to write this book because the material um, didn't lend itself to that at all. And so, and I, I didn't allow many different words to circulate. Um, I, I, I. Some of my projects, I use these like wonderful words that I curate, that I like scavenge. I have a little notebook. I'm like, this word hasn't been used since the 1200s. This is a great <laughs> word, but for this this project, I it was it was really. Um, Really flat, and they're only simple sentence forms, and so it was just so claustrophobic and um, kind of um, deadly to compose. So anyway, um, I'm going to read um, this this passage, and it's one of the daughter pieces. The baker had a daughter. The baker's daughter worked in the bakery. She cut the gray cakes of yeast. She mixed yeast and water for the baker. Her fingers were wrinkled with moisture and they gave off a sour odor. The nails had come loose in the nail beds. The skin that seals the nails in the nail beds was too soft to hold the nails in place. One day a man cut a loaf of bread and he found a string of hair. The string of hair passed lengthwise through the bread from end to end. The baker cut the hairs from the daughter's head. One day a man cut a loaf of bread and he found ten fingernails in the center of the loaf of bread. The baker cut the daughter's fingers at the first knuckles. One day a man cut a loaf of bread and he found the key to the bakery. The man did not tell the baker. The man came in the night to the bakery where the baker's daughter waited. The baker's daughter showed the man the sack of coins the baker hid beneath the floorboard, and the man lifted out the sack of coins. He lifted the skirt around the waist of the baker's daughter and felt with his fingers beneath the skirt. His fingernails were ragged, and the baker's daughter cried out so that the man put his forearm across her mouth. The baker's daughter did not cry out again. The baker was upstairs sleeping in his narrow bed. The man dropped one of the baker's coins on the floor for the baker's daughter. The next day, a man cut a loaf of bread and he found a coin in the heel of the bread. The baker crushed his daughter's skull with the wedding stone. He put her beneath the floorboard in a sack. Thanks. <laughs>
2: definitely getting that book all right no seriously that was awesome thank you joanna um peter stenson is up next peter is the author of the novel fiend forthcoming from random house in 2013 i think it is july yeah yep july um he has stories and essays published or forthcoming in the sun the greensboro review confrontation harper pilot Post Road, Fugue, Passages North, The Pinch, Blue Mesa Review, and 14 Hills, among others. He has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. He received his MFA in Fiction at Colorado State University. Let's welcome Peter.
5: All right. Uh, thanks for everyone being here. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, so far, just absolutely great uh, readings. Um, definitely an honor to be here. Uh, kind of the the story behind this um, is like that asshole story that you hear and you're like, ah, oh, fuck him. You know, like it, it was like really just everything kind of fell into place, um, you know, with this book. I was getting my MFA up in Fort Collins. Um, and I'd written a couple novels. I should say, I, I write very fast and I, I write a lot, you know, and it's, you know, a thousand, couple thousand words a day, you know, so it, I generate a lot of material and wrote a couple novels and um, they sucked, you know. It was all just like doom and gloom, like Hemingway trying to, you know, like the tree was wilting and, you know, just all that stuff that just was not me, not how I see the world, and really not what I'm interested in you know uh so then this one um you know i, I said you know no, forget it i put away like my best american anthologies and i quit listening to my classmates and you know all of that and like i thought about the books that i read you know as a kid uh you know the stuff that got me excited about writing and telling stories and you know i by God, I was going to have a plot in this next one, and you know, like there was, it was just going to be something that that made me excited to to write, you know, and it just didn't suck and was so boring, you know. Not so saying that other people can't do it really well, but I, I just can't do that real stark literary stuff. Um, so, so this one kind of came out of that. Uh, I met an agent at AWP and I said some cheesy line like, hey, you want to get rich or, you know, something like that. <laughs> Which is like, totally not me because I'm a very awkward person. Um, and, well, it was pretty awkward there too. But And uh, anyway, he's like, yeah, okay, whatever. He gave me his card and I, you know, sent over all these like, uh, great synopsis of these these other novels that I had written, and he's like, ah, snoozefest, and then, you know, I told him about this one, I had, you know, one chapter for, for Fiend written, and he's like, yeah, that, that sounds good, I think I could sell that, and uh, you know, that's another, like, dirty word in in that, you know, in the MFA world, is like selling, and, you know, all of that, so... And it kind of helped, too, because my, <laughs> my brother-in-law has, like, broke up with his girlfriend, so he came and lived with us, so I just, like, wanted to be out of the house, you know? I mean, he's a great guy. I love him. But so basically for, like, six weeks, I just was, was out of the house. I write at a coffee shop because I just can't stand, like, to be around people I know when I write for some reason. So I, like, rock back and forth. I don't know. Uh, so basically from, like, first sentence to, to the end, it was, like, six weeks. And he's like, sweet. I love it. Um, and then <laughs> He gave it to his mom Supposedly he's like oh I'll have my editor look at it so it turns out to be his mom <laughs> I was like oh shit Like this what did I sign up for You know um, But she you know Helped it out and it was basically Like just Not misspelling every word like You know so we did that Um He told me, you know, July is a bad time to sell a book. Uh, So we waited until, like, September. And he sent it out. And it was, like, went to auction in, like, two weeks. I was like, oh, this is fucking easy. I'm great, you know. It just... (laughs) Lo and behold, you know, it, it sold, and i really happy with it, but I, I'm paying for that now, you know, like trying to sell a second book. I was like, okay, maybe that was really lucky, and, you know, so I'm starting to feel what everyone's, you know, talking about, um, so I don't feel like such an asshole. Uh, I just, I think I got lucky with this, you know, because everyone loves a zombie right now, so, <laughs> you know. Um, I'll go ahead and read just, you know, a page and a half or so. Um you know, people are kind of talking about their process. I just, I, I hear a voice, uh, and I write in that voice until it gets boring, and then I just quit that thing. And this one was able to sustain, you know, for 300 pages, so that's why that's how this one came out. Um, all right, Monday, 8:45 a.m. So, typewriter John and I have spent the last hour lying to each other, faking concern, panic, and desperation, and all the while helping the other look for the last hit. The thing is, we each know the others holding on to an eraser-sized shard. It's like a standoff, but both of us wanting to be left the fuck alone for five minutes. Finally, Typewriter Cave says he's gonna take a shit, which I know isn't true because we haven't eaten in close to three days. I pull out a tiny bit of glass, burn it. It's barely two hits, and I'm spun bad, like from our week-long bender, but this one really does it. Because when I peek through the G.I. Joe curtains... Sheets we've draped over the windows I see a little girl playing with a dog I'm thinking this is kind of sweet This blonde child crouching on all fours Inching closer to the dog Like maybe she's playing a game, make-believe Where she's a dog too But then I notice the dog is shaking And it's a big dog, a rottweil And he's shaking, his head down, his terracotta his tail covering his nuts. What the fuck? I'm about to return to our cave of a world because the sun is ungodly bright, but I see the dog take a snap at the little girl. She dodges him just in time. I think about pounding on the glass. I need to warn this kid. I need to do something, but I don't. I stand there. The little girl creeps back to the dog, and once she gets close enough to touch it, she does, only her touch isn't a pat, but a lunge for the Rottweiler's throat. It reminds me of this time I saw an elderly woman crossing the street. She almost made it across, When a black hummer turned right and came straight at her, not slowing And the old woman looked up in time to see her fate As an extravagant flaunting of male testosterone And she crumpled, lost underneath tons of metal The little blonde girl rips open the dog's throat I rub my eyes, blood sprouting like Old Faithful Her white dress now tie-dyed, swatches of brilliant red on cotton I close the G.I. Joe sheets. I sit down. I'm telling myself it's gone too far this time. The latest run. Smoking half an ounce of sconti, That I need to chill the fuck out like K.K. said. I tell myself that this is it. That I will leave this house on the outskirts of St. Paul. Go find something to eat. Take a handful of Advil PMs. And call it a day. Call it a career in smoking pe- speed. Never have experienced such vivid hallucinations. Sure, tracers and voices and shit like that. But not seeing carnage on this scale. I laugh to myself. I try to analyze my hallucination. The little girl represents innocence, but it's probably significant that she's blonde because KK's blonde, and that ties into innocence, because we were close to that, her and I, at least in the beginning. And the dog, maybe that's man's best friend, maybe it's natural or maybe it's the natural world, maybe primal nature. And the subversion of the natural order, the child killing the dog, that's pretty simple. Innocence wins out. Thanks.
2: Thanks, Peter. All right. Last up is David Rothman. In addition to teaching at Lighthouse, David J. Rothman serves as director of the poetry concentration in the low residency MFA in creative writing at Western State Colorado University and also teaches at CU Boulder and Denver University. He, ser- he serves on a number on a number of boards, including, as of this coming April, as Western States representative on the board of the Association of Writers and Writing Programs (AWP). A few weeks ago, he served as the MC for the Colorado State Finals of Poetry Out Loud, the NEA's National High School Poetry uh, Recitation reci- 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 Recipe. Reci- Recipe, recitation contest his, his second book of poems, The Elephant's Chiropractor Was a finalist for the Colorado Book Award And his sixth volume, Go Big Is forthcoming from Red Hen Press in 2015 Living the Life, A Book of Essays on Mountains and Mountain Towns Is forthcoming from Conundrum in Fall of 2013 He lives in Boulder Let's welcome David Rothman
6: Thanks Great to be here. You know, I, I thought I was a writer until I, I came here tonight. Colorado's simmering, and it's full of uh, so many uh, talented people. I think Colorado writing's really going to go off. But they're, they're, uh, I saw something tonight while one of these readers was reading that was re- really stunned me and amazed me and that I thought was beautiful and inspiring. And I won't tell you who it is, but one of these writers has, actually has writing implements. And you wouldn't have seen this because you can only see it from the back um, in, in, um, his or her hair, which is, I mean, it was, it was amazing. (laughs) Look at that. She's prepared. (laughs) She, she's got, (laughs) I want to show you why I'm inspired because you know, if I, it's like, (laughs)
5: it's
6: not going to work. So it's great. It's, it's, it's it's great to return to the, I, I love prose. Um, But it's good to return to the world of poetry. Of course it reminds me of a joke. And if if I told you this joke earlier this tonight, please don't yell the answer. But um, how many poets does it take to change a light bulb? How many? Broccoli. (laughs) There you go. That's the answer. Yeah, obviously a room full of prose writers. It's okay. (laughs) Uh, this is the story of, of two books I, I published two books this month I, You know, story though, I don't know This. I mean, I don't want to make anyone cry Or anything uh, Poetry is a strange art Sort of like, you know, fire eating Or, I don't know Diving from the high Platform into a Bucket That This one was rejected 70, 77 times uh, <laughs> But it <laughs> Uh, I, I guess uh, you know the, one of the interesting things about the way the poetry market has changed, and here I'll just offer some advice, is to say that publishing in journals apparently doesn't lead to uh, book publication um, anymore because the market has changed in interesting ways. We don't have time to go on at length about that. Uh, what I about an hour? Is that? <laughs> anyway, the uh, so I'll will just recite one of the poems from this book, the Book of Catapults, um, which was in the Atlantic, which which didn't seem to. To make a difference Um, Which is fine with me You know, fuck them anyways But the (laughs) That guy's dead I mean, really But it it, uh, I would just encourage you Actually, if you're Just as a piece of advice To say that If you're interested in publishing books You should pursue book publication Journals are great And wonderful, of course But uh, I will say that 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 link doesn't quite apply in the way that it used to in terms of the business model. In any event, this is a, this is a poem that I wrote after um, writing a scholarly essay on intentional dog roll, which is um, of a really great form. Bob Dylan does it, W.H. Auden does it, Samuel Butler did it, Byron does it, and Don Juan, In other words, uh, Ogden Nash built his entire career on writing intentionally bad poetry, poetry that um, is supposed to be metrically clumsy, um, uh, which is why we know it's Don Juan instead of Don Juan because Byron rhymes it with true one, in order to in order to trip you up. Chaucer wrote doggerel. Actually, the first occurrence of the word is in the Tale of Melody And Chaucer, um, in any event, so I, I wrote this essay and then I wound up writing this uh, this poem called "Not My Leg," which came to me. It's a kind of a prayer. So I was thinking about you know God and death and sex and things like that. <laughs> This is what poets do in between drinks. Not my leg. Not my leg. Wait a minute, I better look at the beginning. I can always forget it.
3: Dear God.
6: Dear God, not my leg. Oh yeah, just need the second line, then the rest will come. Just sort of like Pavlovian dog. Not my leg, my lean, strong leg. Choose any other part, but please don't start with my lovely leg. I'd look bad with a peg. Not my hand, my articulate hand. Please don't let it get torn or shredded. Writing this book would be hard with a hook. (laughs) You must understand I need my hand. Not my eyes, dear God, not my eyes. Don't poke them out So I grope about Like Homer Milton Joyce If you have to be blind To have such a voice I find I want my eyes Not my urethra (laughs) Not my anus The avenues That meekly drain us (laughs) At least if they you get infected, please let it be quickly detected So a minimum of me gets cut Leave them alone, my necessary thrones Of pleasure and smut <laughs> Not my body, my only body I know that the construction's shoddy Not built to last, someday it will lie in the past Still I cannot restrain myself From praying for my own good health Which some denying part of me believes should last eternally, although that only could hold true for something out of nature's view and not my body, not my body. There you go. So, thank you. so both of these books, uh, I'll, I'll simply say they're comedies. And I think uh, this one, uh, which took, you know, uh, 430 years to publish, is uh, is a, it was really a kind of a draft for the other one. Because this one, I, as a, a typical younger poet with testosterone poisoning and so on, I was trying to um, just put together the poems in a kind of a sequence. And it was sort of like, I don't know, you know, uh, having sex with a tiger or something. I couldn't. I, I did my best In this case These um Chicken and egg are lying in bed Ch- Chicken is smiling Egg looks Has a frown on its face Chicken turns the egg and says Well I guess we settled that question Didn't we So this This uh <laughs> Knock knock Poet Broccoli The uh, um, this book, which is this beautiful book from Antesis Press, uh, which also came out last month, uh, really didn't get, re- get rejected much at all. I, you know, I didn't know what to do. I, I was very confused. And it, uh, it's, it's also a comedy in the sense of a, a Dantesque, Dantean, Dantellini comedy. It moves, it moves from darkness to light. Um, and it's arranged that way. This one, however, was intentional. Intentionally that way. Oh, I'm going to read. I have to put on the other glasses. God, I'm so old. Uh soon I'll be dead. It's okay. The uh <laughs> this doesn't hurt much. The uh so uh I there are a number of characters here. It's it is a uh it's a long sequence. Um and I'll just read two poem two or three poems from it. They're short, you know, I'm a poet. They might only last I mean I already read four and you didn't even realize. And the uh, <laughs> they uh they uh <laughs> So it starts in, there are a number of themes, a number of different speakers, notably a demon. Um, And I'll I'll read at least one of the demon poems. Um, And this is, uh, this poem comes from the beginning, sort of the introduction where the themes are being sounded. And it's called uh, Matans, you know, morning prayers. If God could see us now, maybe he'd say something gentle, something true and wise. Perhaps explain why he had gone away. Who knows? He might even apologize. So let's imagine buying God a beer. Prepared to listen, though we have a list. Hate, love, light, darkness, sadness, glory, fear. First chance we get, we smile. You've been missed, we say, but things just go downhill from there. He throws his head back, roars with laughter, farts. Starts telling filthy jokes. Flies through the air, singing, I'm gonna kick your ass at darts. (laughs) Then he starts to cry and kills a child. We cower. His cold eyes burn with sweetness wild. So, uh, yeah. Um, So, um, here's a, here's a demon poem. There's a demon bomb. Um, this is, this is, this is uh, well, th- some of them are very serious, but, you know, it's a poetry reading. I don't want, I don't want to be too much of a downer. I mean, really. So this is, uh, uh, this is You Can't Dance to the News. Imagine it as a country western song. <laughs> you can't do the twist to a suicide bomb. And who wants to waltz in a dead girl's shoes? You do not dosy do while morticians embalm. Folks, you just can't dance to the news. You can't shuffle or tap on a tidal wave or foxtrot across today's waterloos. Some have been known to dance on a grave, but you just can't dance to the news. No, you can't boogie down to the rocket's red glare or crump in a war zone's ICUs. Nobody rumbas, bombs bursting in air. I say you just can't dance to the news. Ballet is lovely, but not on the bench. The poor don't gavotte to the IMF's IOUs. You can't saraband across battlefield stench. No, you just can't dance to the news. Let's go to a club. Come on, you say. But, sweetheart, I can't. I've got the blues. I'm all shook up by what happened today. Oh, I just can't dance to the news. So, I'm I'm sad to say they get a lot darker than that. Uh, um, And this is... um, I'll just read one of the poems at the end where... We are um, approaching light, and this is called. Where did it go? It's it's hiding from me. All I thought. Uh, Extra points for the identifying the rhetorical figure that appears fourteen times. (laughs) It used to be. Excuse me. It used to be that all I thought about, and yet I felt that I could never find. I'd sunk into a place where only doubt, and when I contemplated how the blind. Back then, I felt that no change ever could. I thought fulfillment was a feeling that. It seemed a sorry fiction, that a good, I thought I had accepted I was at. Then I met you and everything became. And now the only thing I want to do. Now every hour, although it takes the same. And now I know that there can be a true these words themselves are evidence Adore, The world's alive, and you by giving more. Thanks.
2: Thanks, David. Um, all right, so for about ten minutes we'll do a Q&A so you guys can ask... Um, questions of of any one of the panelists, Um, and then after that, we'll do the uh, uh, book sale and signing, all right? So while I kind of mess with this, does anybody have a question they'd like to ask? Um, I would like to ask a practical question, the story of how you found...
4: Agent story. I have an agent story. Um, I, when I uh, had finished a draft of another governess, Elise Blacksmith, I was contacted by an agent who, and maybe this um, means. Well, it's only happened to me one time. But maybe this indicates for prose writers there's a, a chance that journal publication might lead to um, someone getting in, in touch with you. So um, an agent had seen some of my work in a journal and had said, you know, do you have anything to send? And so I sent another governess, Elise Blacksmith, and then um, heard back from the agent. I was like, God, we could never sell this. This is... <laughs> This is unsalable, and, and I said, "Well, uh, okay, you know." I was like, "It was my big break," and nothing. So that was the end of that was the end of my career with agents. Um, but then um, I sent uh, I sent the book to um, a contest at Fiction Collective Two um, has every year it was the the Catherine Doctorow Innovative Fiction Prize that um, a friend um, you know said I, I should do it and I also did it at, at the kind of eleventh hour because I knew that the judge um, because I knew the judge no because because I knew because he was because, <laughs> because the judge was my father no the ju- because the. Um, I knew that, that he was he's a baker and also a judge is um, <laughs> it was, it was, uh, ben marcus he's a, a writer whose um, who's, whose work I know and like, and so I thought and is also um, experimental or innovative and so contests i guess are one avenue they're sort of daunting because they cost money to enter and um, and I feel like it's the contests you should enter are the ones where you have a sense that, oh, this judge is someone whose work I know and who i've won i 've won two contests now, and it um is because in both cases they were the they were the contests that I was like, I might win that one, that person might like what i do um, and so that's so after the agent was like. Never. I sent it I sent it to um to this contest which actually had a fifteen thousand dollar cash prize. So I was like, that's right. And that and that's all I mean, that's all the money I'll ever make from writing. But it was um Yeah, so I don't know. I, I still have no agent, so I don't know how that happens. Maybe I should who knows. So you know, the microphone.
3: you said the word agent, so you're not a poet. <laughs> so here you go. <laughs> I just got lucky.
5: I was sitting there at the Colorado Review booth, and this dude in the suit came up. And uh, but I, I would agree. Um, I have had success, uh, you know, like publishing stories in journals, and then been contacted, and have had the same experience with those first ones. Are like, dude, this is fucking awful, you know, like, send me something good. Um, But, you know, I've had agent two uh, contact me that way, so that's all I know.
6: As a poet, my view is that agents, the existence of agents represents a kind of it's a manifestation of a decadent stage of late capitalism, and we'll deal with them after the revolution. (laughs)
1: about um, the whole thing you said
6: about journal, you know, we used to think that getting some journal publications
4: is uh,
6: a quote readership. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I did very well with the journals. Uh, couldn't do a lot better, really. You know, Kenyon Review, Gettysburg Review, The Atlantic, Poetry, etc., etc., et Appalachia. The newspapers, and I think that that link has been broken, and I think that has to do with a number of things uh, the dispersal of the centers of poetry publication, the fact that it makes less and less money, the rise of the MFA programs, the rise of the prize culture for books um, and it's a long conversation um, you know, prizes basically create upfront capital subventions for the publication of books there are a lot of problems with them as a model because they pit the members of the audience against each other, uh, in any event, what's happened is that as far as poets go, and I don't know of uh, poetry, but perhaps also for stories, uh, certainly not for novels because they, they emerge as books for the most part, the, uh, unless they're excerpted, they, there just doesn't seem to be a tremendous connection anymore between um, successful journal publication and successful book publication because it doesn't help you to leap the uh, the book publication – fence because a lot of the times you can't even put your acknowledgments pages in. So I would suggest that while while journal publication is exciting and fun and worthwhile, and I edit journals, I publish in journals, I enjoy it. uh, If you want to publish books of poetry, you should work hard at publishing books of poetry. And of course you have to get some poems into the journals, but as a purely practical matter, that link doesn't exist the way it did 50 years ago. Where if you appeared in the New Republic and Poetry Magazine, in the New Yorker, in the Atlantic, you, you know, you'd, you, uh, you'd go to Forrest, Straus or Random House or whatever. It just it's just not the same. It seems to have changed, and I think those are some of the reasons. Um, it's a very interesting question. I, I don't have a an absolute answer, but I'd say that might have something to do with it. And the other, apparently poets are named David J. So the other David J. may have something
3: to say about that as well. Um, I like journal culture. Uh, I'm an editor of, a, have been an editor of three different journals. Um, it's a good gauge for me if I send poems out and they get rejected over the course of a couple of years. I look at them again. What's not a good gauge is the poem that gets eight days later because then I think I'd love it and I, it takes me two years to realize wow I duped that editor what a, <laughs> it's like a, this is like a really bad poem but I don't I don't really have a cynical view of of uh, the journal especially for poetry getting your name out there builds community when you go to AWP the people people have been mentioning we're, we're all Facebook friends with just because their names are in are in print Ben I've never met Ben Marcus but he and I like chit chat and so forth on Facebook, and probably had a beer together. Getting your name out there, I think, is very, very invigorating, important, fun thing. Will it guarantee a book? No, of course not. I don't. Not think. In the way it used to. Yeah,
6: that's. I, so I agree. It's just that it won't. It won't link up.
4: I guess I also just want to add that even though um, we we sort of like live in this time where we're afraid that the like the root metaphor of the book no longer holds and maybe we're at the you know the decline of of book culture there there are um i mean it's also sort of an exciting time cuz books are available in sort of multiple forms from like the the codex book to the the stone tablets that i sometimes put in my hair to like ebooks and there are a lot of um there are a lot of uh, small presses out there that you don't need an agent to, to send your, your work to them, and sometimes because they have a really small staff, they um, you know will have a, a reading period that's only like for one month or something like that. So you kind of have to stay on top of it, but. Um, uh, the the books that I, I've published have all been sort of through open open submissions with um, a press, and sometimes those presses also have um, have a journal that they put out. So sometimes a journal is a way to familiarize yourself with with the kind of stuff that a, a press puts out. And so I mean maybe the the sort of big houses and the sort of in route to um, publishing your your work would yield I don't know a larger group. Of readers and possibly some kind of financial return, but um, but if you're if you're in it for the love, and some some readers, um, there are a lot of presses out there. That, like they're actually sort of proliferating that you can sort of mm-hmm. um, look for on the interweb and other places. <laughs> yeah,
6: I, I agree that the uh, the counterpart to that is the rise of POD and great small presses Mm -hmm. who are doing, a lot of them doing
0: incredible work. There's a question over there. (coughs) Yeah. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about promoting your books and what you've done to market yourself or promote, or have you done that, and and how do you go about that, or do you just sort of let that be taken care of by other people? You're obviously here, so Mm -hmm. you're doing some work along those lines, but what are the things you do and how do you do that? Do you do that online, or what kinds of activities do you do?
4: I fail at it. I I don't even have a Facebook page. I'm I'm the I'm the worst Um, because because I think I mean it's the one it's the one part I don't know that feels like it's not the part that you love. I mean the face to face like even like this is a large group of people, but it still feels like a you know like a face to face event where we can have a conversation. Um, But the the part where yeah you're just sort of selling it that. I know that's a, that's a, that's a part of it, but, and I, am an editor, um, I edit a a fiction journal called Birken Snake, and so for that, I want to promote, um, the writers that I, I, I publish, and, um, and I, I try not, I try much harder not to fail at that, and it's still, um, it's still really hard, we have a website for the, um, for the journal, um, I mean, readings. Readings. I think are good. I know people go on book tour. I mean, are there do other people have thoughts about how they're you're going to Comic Con?
5: Yeah, I I I think most writers would be. It's a, just a really awkward thing to you know sell yourself, sell your book. I don't know. I they had like this publicity team and they gave me this plan and like told me to do certain things and so that was cool. Um, <laughs> They're like, bust out your Chewbacca suit. You're going to Comic Con, so I was like, all right, cool. You know, so that'll be fun. Um, but just like you know, like, cause you see it like on Twitter or whatever. Like people would like reply or retweet their quotes of you know. It just feels so damn cheesy. But I know it's. I guess it's part of it. Um,
3: I'm not quite there yet, so we'll see. I think a lot of it has to do with what press you. Uh Takes your book, Random House, right? Yeah, so, I mean, they're in large control. As a poet, I really, really, really lucked out and totally humbled that four-way took this. I'm not allowed to do certain things. They really have a marketing team. They're setting up readings and all sorts of stuff, and that's weird, For poetry It's very very strange Um, I have friends who have to set up their own readings Who whenever they're on vacation They contact bookstores locally They contact friends Where can I give a reading Where can I give a reading and so forth Um, I confirmed that it was okay for me to be here This is very weird As a poet Especially because you never think of yourself as a commodity Um, And so I'm in a strange position In terms of, of marketing but, on my own, about every twelve minutes on Facebook, I do remind people that I have a poem in some <laughs> some magazine, so just keep reposting <laughs>
6: here's, here 's here's, here's an example of marketing I mean, do you have anything you need done around your house because if you buy my book i 'll be like i can i 'm like really good with grout and uh, you know red sauce I mean you know it looks like Please please, no. It's the uh, (laughs) the larger issue in the culture is is uh, of course we all want we want people to buy our books and so on but nobody woke up nobody could have woken up in 1750 and said gosh I'd really like to hear Stravinsky today Uh, no one has an inherent need for anything that that uh, we do (laughs) but uh, so what we have to do somehow is uh, is work to to get. To create that interest To create that, that desire I, I would humbly suggest that uh, that, that that's we, we, we have very fine writers in America What we need to continue to work on Is the development of the culture of reading There can no be, be no great poets without great audiences Too As mm. some jerk said somewhere I can't remember who But the uh, Yes it was Whitman But the uh, <laughs> uh, 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 And really what we need is a stronger culture of, of or an ongoing and a developing and a a sustained culture of reading, and we all share in that. And the answer, this may sound strange, but I would suggest that there isn't obviously room to develop all of that here, but the real answer to the question of how to market books lies in uh, third grade. It's an educational question, because if you don't have a country of people who read and who know how to read and who love to read for pleasure, as opposed to say informational text, which is now supposed to constitute constitute seventy percent of the twelfth grade standards in the common core oh. english curriculum uh, nobody 's going to want no nobody 's even going to know how to read what we like to write, so we really if, if we deeply, truly care about reading and they 're about marketing our own work, we should all be invested in the education of um, Children, so maybe the best thing we could do to market our books is go to the local library and read for story hour. Uh, I'm I'm exaggerating only slightly. Uh, I I think it's really quite a very a very serious issue, Um, uh, but that's sort of a airy philosophical argument or response.
3: Bright shoes don't hurt.
6: (laughs) <laughs> the Pope is barefoot. Yes. Uh,
2: let's do one more question. Yes. What advice would the poets give to
3: poets who are just starting out on their journeys? <laughs> no. No. Ab- absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> David, This David J. is not starting on his journey, but I am. And absolutely essential to me was a small community of r- close readers who are intimate enough with me that they will tell me not to pr- work on this poem anymore. And the most vital thing is having the honest voice. Um, not your own. That was just like a friend responding immediately. One is here unless he snuck off. Blake is just like, don't follow through with this or other friends through email like eh and so when they gravitate towards something um, and still have problems with it you know so finding those three or four people that's been vital to me and I suspect that doesn't go away I don't know do people read your stuff right away I mean not right away but intimates
6: I have to steal their shoes first yeah (laughs) oh
3: Oh, you're not poets
1: (laughs)
6: I get in trouble for answering this question every time, but it's it's hard to resist because I think the best advice is sleep around, and it's just I I don't. But you know, but but seriously, I would respond with two comments from. uh, Sorry, I've I've I've, I've gotten arrested for saying that, but I uh, I I would respond with two pieces of advice from W. H. Auden, and uh, the first thing he said was, "Hold the microphone away so you don't feedback." I don't. Sorry, back for the podcast. Uh, He wrote an essay on D.H. Lawrence called The Unemployed Magician, and he he said men, but we'll take that to mean men and women. He said, if two people come to me who say they want to be poets, and uh, one says, I really have something to say, and the other one says, I'm just so utterly fascinated by what happens when you place one word next to the other, it's the second one who has the chance of probably becoming a poet in the long run because everyone has something to say, but very few people are very good at putting one word next to the other. Uh, And the other thing he would say is learn, first of all, learn everything you can about meter. And uh, I think that advice still holds true. Not my words, but Auden's. uh, Because that's the craft on which the rest of the art is built. Um, And without trying to offend the right-hand side of the panel too much, I'd say if you have something to say, you can say it in prose. If uh, in, 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 if you want to do something else, if you want to do something in addition to saying something, or separate from saying something, not that it's better, just different, then you. that's why you write verse. And, uh, and the techniques of verse are pretty important if you want to be a strong poet. And they, it's an endless activity. As Derek Walcott has said... You know, I have a great... Uh, he says... I'm paraphrasing. He says, you know, th- there's only this endless torture of getting up every day and trying to write a few lines and knowing they could always be better and trying to stitch them and restitch them a thousand times. And my advice would be work on how to write great lines and damn the torpedoes uh, because you're unlikely to get um, rich. You won't even know what an agent is. <laughs> I mean, it's like a cleaning agent, maybe. That's it. I don't know.
3: I just I want to follow up on that there's this, When it comes to poetry there's this weird notion Birthed since about the 50s That somehow it's uh, The more authentic juice of human experience It's not Even take the, the great confessionalists There's nothing about Lowell or Plath or Berryman Or Sexton whose stories Are interesting It's technique, they're totally vivid Weird, playful Technicians It's such a misconception to think we turn to poetry for the the real stuff we can't get from prose. You turn to poetry for play and the mechanics and meter and all sorts of other stuff that I think should distract you more than your own story to tell. I completely agree with with that. Cool. All right.
2: Thank you, guys. That was awesome.
0: Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.